The Athletic. This is The Athletic Football Podcast weekend preview and match day 25 in the Premier League. I'm Michael Bailey. I'm standing in for Adam this week. Joining me, I'm delighted to say, are Tim Spears. Hello, Tim. Does a little bit of you still class Spurs versus Wolves as a Tim Spears derby? I was never for me to put that moniker on myself. That's up for others to decide. That's fine. Well, I will decide later then. Right. Case. Yeah. Uh, Nick Miller's here as well, which is great. Nick, I, this is my question. You have not planted this on me. What was the favourite thing that you wrote, line or piece, this week? Uh, I haven't actually written a huge amount this week which is a strange thing to say for someone who's supposed to be a, a writer but I, I was I've been working on something about the etiquette of celebrating goals against your former team and I was reminded of do you remember Chris Maguire who was uh he used to play for Sunderland and Aberdeen and Aberdeen and uh, he moved there was he had some kind of beef with then Sunderland manager Lee Johnson then moved to Lincoln City and he scored against Sunderland and he did the kind of sorry for scoring against my old team thing. And then, having done that, he ran over to wildly celebrate in front of Lee Johnson because of their previous beef. And then he went on to score two more goals in that game. And he had no idea what to do with himself in terms of celebration by the end of it. So in the course of uh, working on something, I was reminded of that. And that was, you know. That's wonderful. Can you keep non-celebrating? Well, he, he sort of did. He kind of... He, by the third goal, he was just a bit kind of, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy I scored. I'm sorry for you. Whatever. Just want to go home now. Move on. Yeah, yeah I've done with my lack of celebrations. Uh, you've heard him already and you'll hear him now. It's JJ Bull, which is your first time today on the weekend preview. That's right. What a great day. It's a great day for the podcast. A great day for me personally as well, of course. Uh, what are you hoping for from this debut, JJ? Well, I think probably instant fame. Yes. Wild amounts of money. Uh, yeah. And friendship. Oh, you've already got that from us three. What really is more valuable than money or friendship? Hmm? Fame, he said. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's uh, go into the fixture formation, which I know is an Adam Leventhal favourite. Uh, it is the same as last week, I'm reliably informed. It um, sounds terribly defensive. It's a 7 2 1. Uh, Saturday to Monday. Uh, let's go through them. Saturday, it starts with a 12.30 kickoff. Of course it does. With a Liverpool 12.30 kickoff. Lucky Jurgen. Uh, that is Liverpool at Brentford. We've then got five Saturday 3pm kickoffs in the traditional sense. Burnley against Arsenal. Newcastle versus Bournemouth. Fulham against Aston Villa. Nottingham Forest. Take on West Ham. Will there be a response from the Hammers who were thrashed? And, uh, oh yeah, the Tim Spears derby as Tottenham host Wolves. That's exciting. Uh, all ahead of the evening kickoff on Saturday, which you could class as the big one, Manchester City against Chelsea at 5.30pm. GMT, of course. All these times are GMT, just to be clear. Sunday, we've got a doubleheader. 2pm, Sheffield United against Brighton. Followed by the 4.30 kickoff, which is Luton against Manchester United. We'll be talking about that one for sure. Ahead of the Monday night football, the glamour tie of the weekend as Everton host Crystal Palace at 8pm. We are going to start the show, however, at the Etihad. It's the late kickoff on Saturday. It is a biggie, definitely. Champions Manchester City against Chelsea. The last time these two met, 
It was one of the games of the season. Cole Palmer. City's boy is Chelsea's yes, 4-4 that one ended. Any chance we get a blockbuster like that this time, Tim? Oh, blimey. Um, you always sort of know what to expect from Man City, but not from Chelsea, who kind of went from, by all accounts, their worst and most disastrous performance of the season at home to Wolves, to their best away at Villa. Then they sort of squeaked past Palace on Monday night in the week after an XG of naught, I think, in the first <laughs> half. Um, so you, you just had no idea what to get, really. But yeah, that, that obviously that game was a classic, the kind of game that Guardiola hates because it was chaotic. Chelsea were great that day, forced an awful lot of mistakes from Man City, so they've some kind of blueprint there, Michael, to do it again. Well, there is, and it would be great to see them do it again. But in terms of what they need to do to make it happen again, they can't play at home again, Nick. No, that would require some, you know, some rather significant tinkering with the whole system, wouldn't it? <laughs> Integrity of the competition yeah. would be at stake. Um, what, what are the things that Chelsea could do to disrupt Manchester City? Because we're all sitting here worried about the Manchester City juggernaut. I mean, I say worried. Obviously, that's that's a you know relative term. But yeah, it's it's, it's kind of less worried, more kind of oh, okay, this is happening again, kind of thing. It is a little bit difficult to to figure out what logical that they they could do to uh, sort of pick apart City. Though obviously, City do have this kind of very slight defensive frailty sometimes but again you you don't necessarily rely on Chelsea to have the kind of required attacking structure to actually break that down so I, th I think that this is going to be one of those games as you kind of uh, alluded to where you've got one fairly chaotic team against one team that tries to be the exact opposite of that and sometimes those things will converge and it will be an absolute battering and sometimes it'll it could result in a game like we saw early on in the season where it's just completely chaotic and there are goals going in everywhere and you know penalties are being scored and Erling Haaland scored with his crotch I think in the the this uh for for one of the goals last time which um you know I can't guarantee we'll see that again but let's hope for it is it do you get a higher xg for that or lower xg I mean it, lower XG, it, it, it must well, it must have been pretty high xg because it was like it, it was from about sort of a yard out mm. so a great point. It's got it's XXG, I think, if you, if you do that. <laughs> XXX, isn't it? Well, it's just... Yeah, I guess so, yeah. yeah. Let's not get stuck in the Xs. Um, <laughs> I mean, XX-rated. I was just chucking one extra X, but, you know, yeah. I mean, Manchester City are doing everyone a service here, really, JJ, because I've reliably informed here, 12 occasions in all competitions, Manchester City have conceded from their first shot on target. So it's kind of a quirk, isn't it? That tells me there's like a concentration thing almost more than anything. Well, I don't know if it's that. It's probably because they have such control of games that... I need to look into this more, actually. But the reason they concede from the first shot is because they often um, push forward and they have all of the ball. So with the chances they concede are a really high value. It's not like they're conceding a goal from... Maybe, maybe it's something random, like a 30-yard punt that goes in the top corner. That can often beat a goalkeeper. Maybe it's a small error. But generally it'd be because we've got so many players pushed forward, you're leaving big gaps, so the chances people are creating on the counter-attack are of a really high value, and that's probably where that's... I assume where that's coming from. And it's something that will balance out over time, because obviously that's, it's an anomaly, right? That shouldn't really happen. You shouldn't really concede from every single first shot you concede. But I guess it's just something that's happened this season to them. 
it's just I, I think it's just doing everyone a favor really and, and opening themselves up a little bit and giving them a challenge themselves a challenge maybe a, c- a couple of injuries they may be missing well I think it's highly likely they'll be missing Jack Grealish uh, Josko Gvardiol is uh, is an injury worry as well I think Bernardo Silva took a whack in their midweek uh, win in Copenhagen so I mean we don't want to revel in injuries obviously that's not the idea and also they've got the squad so they're probably going to be all right. That's a shame about Jack Grealish. He hasn't really been a part of it this year, has he? No, he's not. He's uh, bad form, bad injuries. He's sort of even out the England picture now, looking ahead to the to the summer. So, yeah, I don't know. City, they just make everything sort of look so easy. They made midweek look so easy. And distinct lack of drama, that 4-4 aside. I think they've only scored two 90th-minute goals all season. One was in a 5-1 win over Fulham. And then the, the Oscar Barb at Newcastle. So that, I think that's why people don't really necessarily enjoy watching them very much because they just coast to victory quite easy. But yeah, in the reverse fixture, you know, you look at Sterling and Palmer, two of their former players, giving them an awful lot of problems and there'll be high motivation levels um, to do so again. But yeah, I think the statistics kind of bear out that when they're missing Rodri and when they're missing De Bruyne and obviously Haaland, then they win fewer games, which sort of makes sense, doesn't it? It does make sense. Um, but if they're all in, then they win. That sort of lack of late goals and the the fact that they're conceding the from their first shot on targets, so they're kind of front loading the peril in in their games, where they kind of go, well, okay, well, maybe we'll this will be a, you know a bit of a contest and maybe we'll make something of this, and then they go nah, and then just you know steamroller teams in the second half or whatever. It's nice on supporters; they don't have to run the gauntlet of leaving early, maybe and missing something. You know, just yeah. turn up on time and you're all right. Yeah, everyone can do that. That's fine. Hey, you mentioned Cole Palmer, Tim. I mean, he has looked sensational. Am I allowed to use the word sensation? I think that's fair. I think he, he just looks, he's got this, this way of just doing magic things, like really creative, but really influential as well. Part of me wants to say, oh, if he was in this Man City team, you know, they, they'd be even better than they are, but he probably wouldn't play. So they kind of had to sell him, but then it seems a shame that they did have to sell him. And a bit like earlier, I'm not sure what the question is here, but it's definitely of benefit for Chelsea to have someone like Cole Palmer in their team, of course. And he strikes me as a sort of player who is going to want to go to Manchester, Manchester City and show them what they're missing. Yeah, I think you've summed it up really, really well. There's not much use to add to your statement. Question. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I guess, you know, I don't know. I don't think they'll regret it because like you say, he wouldn't necessarily be playing. And sometimes it, it takes a move for a player to really sort of flourish. You know, you can stagnate if you've been somewhere for a while. And I think he's really taken on the responsibility of already becoming a senior player in that Chelsea team. He looks like he's got that character to embrace it. And I don't think that would have happened at, at City. I'm not actually not that sure he, he is the kind of character to go, oh, well, you know, go back to my old club and I'll show you. He just seems to, and this is, you know, not out through any kind of, particular inside knowledge but he just seems to be one of those guys who is sort of vaguely unaware of the world around him and and that yeah I, I could be one of the reasons why he's been so good at Chelsea because he's been kind of thrown into this deeply chaotic situation where you know players like Caicedo and Enzo Fernandez to an extent and a lot of other, the other players that they signed over the summer have seemingly been a bit you know startled by this and you know they've they're in this environment with no real structure and Cole Palmer's just kind of come in and unaffected by everything that's going on around him so yeah he's just been brilliant. I'm sure I read that he said he didn't it wasn't that he was pushing to try and get in the team it's that he was told one day that he was being sold to Chelsea so 
there's a different. I'm sure I read that in the Athletic. You can read that too in the Athletic. If Man City are receiving a bid of forty five million, whatever it was, for a player who's come through their academy, that really helps with their FFP stuff to sell that on because there's obviously no. It helps with the book value and all that sort of stuff. So that makes sense for them to sell him. They don't want a player who's not totally committed to what they're trying to do. And also, if you have someone who is a bit discontented and is trying to break in, and the best thing for his career is to get constant minutes, then the best thing to do for everyone is to sell him on. And then it made total sense at the time, I think, for him to go. And he scored. I think he scored the, in the Community Shield, and he also scored in the, the winner in the thingy, the European... Super Cup. Super Cup. Yeah. So he's already at the level, and he's spent the last like two, three years, he's seen Foden break in the first team, but not always play. Because Guardiola's very careful with young players. And uh, that's often offer, often overlooked, I think, is that they don't play loads of minutes. Like Foden's only really starting every single game this year. It's taken him long to get to that point because he brings him in and maybe gets some 20 league games a season. So it looks like they're not playing that much, but it's all part of a longer strategy. <laughs> it certainly is. And I think that listing the goals and the impacts he's had there and then what you said, Nick, it is almost like, yeah, maybe he wouldn't necessarily go out to prove it, but I would trust him to go and do it anyway almost because he just seems to rise to these big occasions. Someone who has also risen to many big occasions is Thiago Silva. But, I mean, I, I looked at this. The question here, and I'll get that out first because that seems to be a good way of doing it, is that, uh, you know, are Chelsea better without Thiago Silva? Well, that, that's the question. Are they, Nick? <laughs> are they? I mean, he's certainly, you know, showing signs of age, which is, you know, I, I, I always feel very, um, I don't know whether guilty is quite the right word, but bad about you know, going, well, this guy is falling apart. He's, he's obviously a crumbling wreck of a man and he's younger than me. So, you know. But this is the point. I looked at it. He, he is 40 in September. Yeah. He's 39 and he's playing in the Premier League. I mean, that's well, in a, that, how many outfield players have played in the Premier League it, it almost sounded like you may try to make me feel even worse about uh, being, I'm older than being, you, Nick. being older than him <laughs> I'm older than you I've never worry. played a Premier League game I'm confident Nick could also name all those players as well if he was really pushed to <laughs> all the players who have been, played over 40 over 40, 40. How many, how many I bet you could there? do it outfield players Nick's amazing at pub quizzes what yeah, I can tell you whilst Nick uh, types away uh, so he would be he would be forty in September. He is due out of contract this summer, and I think we're assuming that he won't get offered a new contract. But I mean, I do kind of want him to because I want to see him playing in the Premier League at the age of forty, just for him. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's not nice when someone's powers are on the wane. Um, this game, may, uh, if he's fixed, he went off with a knock at Palace. But this game may suit him a little bit better if they're going to play a deeper line, which you would expect them to do. That would be slightly more sensible away at Man City. But yeah, I think at Villa, they had Sassi and Badia Shield. They could play a higher line and it suits, seems to suit them a lot better. Obviously, it makes them more tactically flexible if you've got a guy who can run quickly at the back compared to an old codger. Wow. In football terms. Poor, poor Tiago. <laughs> I've done some deep research into this. That was and, quick, Nick. Oh, well, it's the internet for you. Um, there are 17 players who have uh, made Premier League appearances over the age of 40. Most of them are goalkeepers. Um, the outfielders are... Teddy Sheringham, mm-hmm. Ryan Giggs, yes. Kevin Phillips, Oof. and Gordon Strachan. Brian Robson, seemingly about 10 days short, he played when he was 39 years, 11 months, and 21 days old. But yes, mainly goalkeepers on that list, but a select few that Thiago Silva might join. According to Transfer Marks, the second oldest player in the league this season, behind Thiago Silva, is Lucas Fabianski, who I would... Would have predicted about 32, to be honest. And he is? Um, 38. Oof. 
stunned silence in the room. It's a career. No one can believe it. Career this is, well this is one, of, one of those things that, like, a player's status kind of lodges in your brain from the first mm. time you see them. Yeah, the young, the youngest sort of backup up and yeah, coming. Yeah, exactly. Right. The, yeah. The, regardless of the fact that he's been a kind of first-choice goalkeeper for probably about 10 years now, Swansea and, and West Ham, he's, to me, he'll always be Arsenal's backup goalkeeper. And Carlo Cudicini is still presumably at Chelsea. <laughs> yeah. I think he might, actually might be still at Chelsea in some kind of coaching role. He was a couple of years yeah, ago anyway. Still hoping to get that England cap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else we want to look ahead to for this one? Manchester City against Chelsea? Or shall we move on to predictions? Look across the room. Move on. Tim saying move on. Um, okay, well, uh, Nick, it's your chance to predict exactly what will happen. Uh, I suspect Manchester City will win this relatively easily. I'm going to go 3 0. JJ? I say 2 1 to Manchester City. The more common goal will come from the first shot on target that Chelsea have. Tim? 4 1. 4 1. I'll go 3 1, because I don't think anyone said that, to Manchester City, just to clarify, in case anyone's wondering. I reckon next we go on to Kenilworth Road. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Let's move on to Sunday, 4.30pm kickoff. Luton Town against Manchester United. Now, Luton were in pretty good form and looking good and all those sort of things and then had a kind of a disaster, really, against Sheffield United to lose at home like that. Uh, Manchester United, on the other hand, are in really good form, I, th I think. I, I can't work it. I watch them and I like, they, they are a lot of fun. I find them fun to watch because you, you're like, what's going on here? But I can't work out if they're any good. But they've got some really fun players to watch now and I suppose that's sort of tying into the fact that I, I feel like I quite like watching them in, in my in my head I kind of allocate I think I allocate a, a one club every season where I have no idea about them and I can't form any kind of significant opinion for ages it was Southampton until they went bad the properly bad last season and I think this season it's it's Manchester United no idea I mean that they, they do seem to be bad um, but they keep pulling results out which they did at the weekend uh, Tim I should congratulate you here on your perfect scoreline prediction last week well done well, tell us about your victory uh, well I'd only got four predictions right all season I think even like results wise so uh, but I've realised I was using my heart instead of my head because um, there's lots of teams I don't like you just, have, I do. you just have such a big heart <laughs> so uh, yeah I, I thought about it Excellent. That's <laughs> wow. Who would have thought that would be the, the, the plan? I mean, have United been lucky in this kind of improved form or is there genuine... Well, their, their performances aren't great. I thought Villa were the better team last weekend. You know, kudos to United for winning the game. They're in good form. But yeah, they've, stuck, they've got a goal difference of naught, which is insane really for a top six club or team. Never really happens unless you're David Moyes at Everton in 2004 kind of thing. Luton have won seven games on XG this season. United have won eight. So, yeah, I watched them against West Ham the week before. West Ham controlled long spells of that game at Old Trafford and had almost double United shots. I watched them beat Wolves 4-3 when they basically threw away the game 
ridiculously before Miner got them out of trouble with an amazing goal. And yet, and their rivals around them just sort of keep stuttering. So Newcastle, really inconsistent form. Brighton, nowhere near it at the moment. West Ham have really dropped off. So all of a sudden, you look at the table and United are in sixth and five points clear of seventh. And I think everyone would have taken that a few weeks ago from a United point of view. They're only five points behind Villa now, aren't they? Yeah. They're fifth. Yeah. Oh my gosh, JJ. We should probably flag Rasmus Hoyland here because five goals in his last five games... Whereas the narrative had kind of been set up until that point that here was a young kid who wasn't ready for the Premier League and they spent a bit of money on him, but they didn't really know, you know, weren't getting the best out of him. He wasn't ready. It was going to take time. And then, oh, now he's got five goals in five. So now he is good enough and definitely ready and, and really good. Uh, he's shown great movement in some of the goals. I, I, it, he, he's good to watch at the minute. <laughs> yes, I agree. Yeah. yeah. He was already the top scorer in the Champions League. Um, Hoyland so it's not that he wasn't working for him he was already scoring loads and doing really well there and it was naturally going to take time to for it to click but basically he doesn't get many passes from his teammates so Garnacho rarely he's the most likely to pass but Rashford tends to run with the ball into people to try and hope he skips past two of them and score Garnacho hasn't really provided th- things Anthony can only go backwards because I think someone put a spell on him at some point or something like that. <laughs> so uh, hopefully he can get over that. But then what you have is a, a striker who's not really getting chances. He only gets chances with the ball's put in behind so he can run onto it. But not everyone plays a high line against Man United because um, they're scared of people putting the ball over the top. And a lot of the stuff that Ten Hag does is to try and draw teams out so he can hit the ball over the top into space. There's a, there's a few patterns you'll often see, especially when the ball goes out to the left, where it goes forwards, like a third man kind of move. The ball goes forwards, about halfway, it's pinged back to the wide left, it's normally Rashford, and he first time pings the ball, like a curve ball over the top for someone to run onto. And they do it quite a lot. And, uh, and that's that's the biggest thing of like Ten Hag football that I see in Man United at the moment. They try and manufacture these um, these moments where they can get the ball over the top into space, but not everyone falls for it. So they're often having to pass and they're not fantastic at that. But Hoyland's done obviously very well, especially in the Champions League, and now he's starting to get the recognition that he deserves, but he's a great player. I think he's really, really good. He was really good before. I, was, I did loads of research on him before he joined the club, and I was convinced he would be good, and I'm glad I've been proven correct. <laughs> uh, there is a piece from Laurie Whitwell and Tom Harris on uh, Rasmus Hoyland's uh, season so far, I guess, and how he is, how he's turned things around. So give that a read. United are in an interesting position at the moment, Nick, because uh, we had this week Jim Ratcliffe's investment... It's probably the word that's now been ratified by the Premier League and the Football Association. So he's going to get his 25% of the club to do as he wishes, which is very exciting for us all to watch, of course. And the news that United want Dan Ashworth out of Newcastle and in their nice, tidy sporting director's office, which I'm pretty sure hasn't really been used yet. Maybe not (laughs) properly. Uh, I mean, all of this stuff. I saw a tweet. I don't know who it was from. I wouldn't want to misquote them, but it basically said that there's a, a chance here that United will no longer be a dysfunctioning club and and those two elements of this week make you wonder if that might be the case steady on I mean I think it will take more than you know some sensible appointments to turn Manchester United into a sensible football club but yeah they're, they're I think our very own David Ornstein saying early on today that they're also trying to uh, appoint Jason Wilcox into some kind of role there which is you know it, it all sounds very kind of encouraging in theory and also just shows that highlights what the hell have they been doing previously if they have been kind of able to bring in these these guys in a relatively short order when Jim Radcliffe isn't officially doesn't his investment hasn't officially been fully approved yet so yeah that, what what on earth have they been doing before if they can kind of fix things or theoretically fix things 
in this relatively short space of time. Where do you see them going from here until the rest of the season? I mean, like I would have thought going to Luton, that's somewhere that they could trip up. I suppose it could be because they're so inconsistent. But at the moment, I kind of feel like they'll probably, they've got these youngsters who are showing up and there's a, there's a bit of magic between some of them. And almost whilst questioning whether they've been lucky or whichever, they are finding a way to pick up positive results. Well, they're scoring goals pretty frequently, which is always going to help. And that's helped by consistency in selection. So they've got a set of front three. They've got a set of midfield three. I don't think that's happened all season. You know, it's uh, Mainu's obviously come in and elevated that midfield. Casimiro's doing okay. Fernandez does his thing. And then the three in tandem, really, up front, to a certain extent, Garnacho, Hoyland and Rashford, makes them good to watch. But you worry for them in defence with, obviously, Martinez probably out for the season. Uh, Luke Shaw picks up another injury the other day. They've had like dozens of combinations used for a back four this season uh, with a shaky keeper behind them who himself, his form isn't helped by inconsistency in selection in front of him. So God knows what defence they'll put out. I think maybe Wan-Bissaka will be shoved in at left back. But whoever plays at left back is an obvious weakness for Luton to exploit. Ogbené um, has been in good form recently, absolutely tore Dan Byrne to shreds a couple of weeks ago. So, yeah, uh, that'll be an obvious place for Luton to try and exploit an obvious weakness. I don't want to keep flipping it onto Manchester United, but Marcus Rashford has seemed to be a lot more um, effective with Luke Shaw behind him as well in recent weeks. Uh, And Luton are on a great run of scoring goals. Only Tottenham are on a longer scoring run in Premier League matches uh, than Luton, who've done it in the last 11 games. And, you know, they are scoring goals. And actually, they did look, to me, JJ, like they were doing a good job of surviving this season until they lost at the weekend. I, I can't help thinking losing at home to Sheffield United is a, was a massive blow. Well, the way they play, that's the kind of team they'd lose to now with Sheffield United because what they're trying to do is play to their strengths and their strengths are their strength. So they are all very strong, forward-thinking, fast players. So they might not be the best on the ball, apart from Ross Barkley in the middle of the pitch, but what they've been doing is getting the ball forward and they follow it. So they play long to a target man, then they follow up. So... This is a game that I could be proved totally wrong, right? So what will happen is Man United will come in and Fernandes will ping one in from 25 yards in the first five minutes, changes the game state, and then they'll be able to hold on and they'll get a lucky 2-0. But what I think is more likely to happen and why this would happen is that Luton will um, not allow United to press them because they'll play over the top straight away. Then you, what you're going to have is the key matchup will be Harry Maguire versus the, the centre forward up top. Adebayo? Adebayo, exactly, yes. I don't know why I didn't say his name because I know his name. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so they have Maguire will be against this guy if, if Maguire wins the header that's great but it bounces loose and it's a second ball and Luton are coached to then sweep that up and they just suck it up so they play with a target man two wide forwards who play quite centrally but they'll be around him and then they squeeze up with the two centre mids and you've got wing backs giving you a width so they'll squeeze around the second ball and then they start to press that second ball and try and win that back but almost all of Luton's goals come from headers they're all headers so either crosses and open play, but mostly corners. They'll hook the ball directly into the middle of the six-yard box just to try and pull Onana off his line. And then they'll have someone tall who will time his run ahead of him or beating everyone else in the air to head it in. And that's where Luton will get goals from. I'm already looking forward to the social clips of you saying that and then there being <laughs> the footage of said goal being scored. Well, it'll be the Fernandez 25-yard ping. Well, that was yeah. well. And you've hedged your bets, JJ. It's a perfect way to do it. I, I can't, don't know if I can see Eric Ten Hag picking his team around Luton's strengths. I don't, I, I, I don't know if... It's, it, he might get tripped up here, but maybe I'm being I'd, unfair I'd say on it's Eric. Like United's weaknesses, though, that's the thing. Like they're not, they're not great. So you've got Casemiro's doing a kind of a job at the moment, but I'd imagine he'll pro- he could drop Mainu into that 
the, the playmaker role, so you can play it from the back if they want to. Luton will try and attack them there, trying to do, but they don't really want to play too much out of defence. They want to be really quick with their passing because Luton will try and stop them early. And that's the problem they've got. Like Luton will press high and drop deep immediately. They'll find it hard to play against. It's more Luton's strength, actually, when I think about it, because they are so big and so hard to play against. That's why they cause good teams loads of trouble. They've done it against all the big teams. It caused them a real hassle this season. Well, JJ, you're going to have to nail your colours to one prediction. The master of one prediction. Uh, I think it'd be quite funny if Luton won 2 0, but I'm going to say 1 1. Okay. I mean, that was sort of two predictions, but we'll take the last yeah, one. Yeah, 1 1. Tim. 2 2. Mm, blimey. Nick. I think Luton will, will win 2 0. Well, I think that does all sum up what we're expecting from United, really. I think United will win 3 1. It could all happen. <laughs> and possibly will. Uh, okay, I reckon we should check in with City's title rivals next. Let's crack on then. First of all, with Liverpool's trip to Brentford. As I mentioned earlier, Jurgen Klopp will be pleased. They just keep giving him these 12.30pm kickoffs on a Saturday. It's like... You asked for it, Jürgen. And we know he takes it well because he still gets asked and, and he sort of walks off when he's asked about it. Yeah. Not, not after a European uh, game this week, though, so maybe he'll be, won't be quite as annoyed by it, but you never know. Maybe. Uh, ominous stat for Liverpool is uh, that Brentford haven't lost at home to Liverpool in the Premier League, Tim. That is only two games and one of them was a draw. But it does feel like somewhere that Liverpool could slip up. This separates the good commentators from the bad commentators because if you hear someone saying at the weekend, oh, Liverpool have won for the first time at Brentford since 1938 and then just move on as a bad commentator, you need context there. He's only played two matches in those 70 years, whatever it is. You tell them, Tim. Well, I, hate, tell I hate it when commentators do that because it happens a lot. It's happened with Brentford quite a bit in the past couple of years. Uh, so, yeah, they're on a they're on an awful... Uh, barren, winless run at Brentford of, of two games. <laughs> well, you think if you just reminded me, of, if, I'm not wishing to go back to Luton United, but Luton have lost nine of their last 10 league games man, against Manchester United. Uh, the exception being the 1-1 draw there in April 92. Brilliant. Remember, I'm well. not going to read them all out, but you can, you know, it's like that with Luton for them. Anyway, Liverpool at Brentford. Liverpool did just about get it done against Burnley. Mo Salah is back in training. Mm. I mean, that's, I'd say a game changer, but they've kind of been all right without him. Yeah, you'd be pretty surprised if, even if he's back in training, he'll be involved. I mean, but by the time you listen to this, then Jürgen Klopp might have said whether he's playing or not. But um, yeah, I'd be pretty surprised if he has any involvement at all. There's no there's no need to rush him back, particularly with the amount of games that Liverpool are going to have for the rest of the season. So, yeah. I've got, I've got a note here, JJ, saying you love Curtis Jones. Yeah, he's very good at football, though, uh, which is one of the many reasons why I like him. I think he's uh, often overlooked what he does for the team when he plays. Liverpool are better, not only because he does things on the ball that are and that belie his youthful age, mm. but also because he's very, very good out of possession and his sense of timing, when to jump and when to tackle and what to do with the ball after he does that. His decision-making is really high. I think like decision-making is one of the most important things that decide what a good footballer is. Curtis Jones has high level decision making usually always does the right thing whether to speed up or slow down the tempo of the game and he's really really technically just good 
Just very, very good with the ball and uh, has all sorts of bits and pieces. I think he should be in the England squad. And well, don't know why he's not. I feel like him and and we mentioned about Cole Palmer. I mean, they both work. They both come through the England youth setup. Both of them should be pretty close if if the team's going to be involved and have fresh impetus in it in terms of the England national team. Yeah, kind of. They, they both might be in the the squad for the Euros, but it's sort of not really how Gareth Southgate works. He he. You know, Calvin Phillips has played one game now, so Cal- well, yeah. Calvin Phillips will. I mean, he was in the the squad when he wasn't playing any games, so he'll be. Once you're in, you're in. He'll be there, and you know, he, he's obviously been out to see Hendo, so he'll be he'll yeah. be in there as well, which kind of doesn't leave too many more spaces for central midfielders. I believe but. one of the centre forwards from the Brentford Liverpool game in 1938 is also in the squad. <laughs> <laughs> Trent Alexander Arnold is likely to miss a few games again now, Tim. I think it's a recurrence. Well, I think what I saw is that his knee didn't really heal first time around and they tried to get him back in and it, 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 he sort of aggravated it again. That's a bit of a worry, I suppose. It's quite annoying uh, for Liverpool and for England, actually, because he he's been tried in central midfield a few times uh, before Christmas. So, uh, yeah, the injuries are sort of defining a lot of team seasons, actually. There's been crises everywhere. feels like whoever's going to keep the fittest squad, probably Man City, will win the league. Um, Aston Villa at the moment not, not going to win the league yeah. they have players the dropping like flies yeah Spurs had a horrendous run Newcastle all these this contact sport I tell you is it though <laughs> is it though uh, if we just switch it to Brentford a little bit mm. I, I had the delights of Molyneux at the weekend and Brentford were, were, were good and Wolves I'm afraid wasn't one of their best performances Tim but I they were, all the elements were there from Brentford as to why they have been you know relatively successful since they they've gone up they were effective at set pieces they were pretty tight defensively and really compact and they had a constant goal threat even when they didn't have the ball which is kind of a, a knack I mean so much of that is down to Ivan Tony everyone's basically saying he's off in fact I believe there's the suggestion maybe it's confirmed I'm not sure if it's confirmed but we've reported certainly Igor Thiago has signed from Club Bruges he will arrive in the summer, 33 million euros. That's a lot of money if you're not selling Ivan Tony in the summer. So you kind of maybe assume that maybe he's the replacement. This Brentford team maybe are in approaching a bit of form that could cause Liverpool trouble. Uh, yeah, sparks by Tony's return, as we kind of all expected, really. He's the talisman and leader. Now, I read your piece last week, but you're the best qualified to talk about Brentford since you saw them in the flesh. But yeah, they hadn't won since, they were the worst team in the league since November, I think. Yeah, their um, form was terrible. And I think they, they kept their first clean sheet in 14 matches at Molyneux. And a lot of people say, and even Thomas Frank says this, which is maybe why I probably shouldn't be saying it, but that, you know, that defensively they conceded too many goals. But actually their defensive record isn't so bad. It's just that they've lost a lot of games narrowly. And I can't work out if that makes you bad defensively or just not quite good enough. Because there are lots of teams with a worse defensive record than them. But there was just a sense that they'd worked on some of the things that were causing them issues. And they, they looked like that well-coached Brentford team that are actually, you know, normally fine in the Premier League. They were, yeah, another, another team that got sort of hampered by injuries as well. They, they, they looked sort of not amazing, but okay when like, Mbwemo and, and Wissa were both there. Wissa went to the to AFCON and Mbwemo's injured. No, obviously now Tony's back, they look much more potent. The... the, the, the the thing of Mbwemo and Wissa means they'll be able to, if, as we all assume, Tony does go in the summer and this Igor Tiago comes in, they'll be able to bed him in a little bit more gradually. Um, yeah. Of course, Thomas Frank linked with the Liverpool job. Indeed. Mm. Among others. Yes. Do you reckon it would happen? Well, I don't know if it would happen. I mean, it could. 
it could happen. But anything could happen. Exactly. I like that. That was very Sky Sports news, kind of, you know, always been linked with the Liverpool job, of course, ahead of this weekend's uh-huh. clash. Ahead <laughs> of this weekend's clash. Wow. If he does well, I mean... I, I could he be... be in the hot seat at Anfield soon? <laughs> could they be switch, switching dugouts? Well, if football manager is anything to go by, what will happen at the end of the season is that Jurgen Klopp and Guardiola will job swap. So, <clears throat> Anything can happen in football. Speaking of which, what could happen at Turf Moor when Arsenal visit Vincent Kompany's struggling Burnley? Uh, who, I mean, Burnley at Turf Moor, that's like a tough place to go, is it? Well, no, it's not a tough place to go, Nick, because apparently they've lost nine of their 12 games at Turf Moor, Burnley. Yeah, in theory, this should be an absolute bloodbath. Arsenal-West Ham game was a bit strange because West Ham was so bad. <laughs> Arsenal were, were, were pretty good, but I've seen Arsenal play better than that this season and, you know, even win narrowly or not even win. So, um, you know, if, if they play anything like that, then they'll I think they'll still win this one pretty easily. So, yeah, Turf Moor, the archetypal easy place to go. <laughs> Arsenal have been very good since the winter break. It's uh, played for one 4 Scored 16. I mean, admittedly, six of them were against West Ham. And everyone talking about their set pieces? Yeah, set pieces very good. And Odegaard's really blossoming, probably in the form of his Arsenal career, I think. Some numbers, some lots of numbers back that up. I think he's the first player in the top five leagues to create 50 chances from open play this season. Expected assists more than anyone in the Premier League in the last two months. So, yeah, the key question, though, from this game is how are Arsenal going to celebrate? Because two weeks ago, they celebrated too much. Last week, Declan Rice celebrated too little. For uh, they, a long they, time They get as well. criticism for, for both, really. So what is it, handshake and jog back to centre circle? Or... Yeah, they don't have any don't there any former Burnley players there, so they haven't got that factor to, mm. to kind of take into account. They should all hold hands and walk up to the stands like they do at the end of a play. Yeah. And bow. And take yeah. a bow. I think that's a lovely idea. That's nice. Mm. And then they kind of usher the, the sort of star performers forward yes to take take a, even more and they get even more yeah exactly but yeah. in the order that they performed with the most starriest performer last yeah you'd have to do that they'd have to come up with that decision quite so, quickly so yeah who'd be last Saka Odegaard yeah and then they would get the crowd to be quiet so they could announce that they're going to the pub or in the corner afterwards if they want to oh that's see them for a drink afterwards or something they'll be in the bar afterwards you want to meet them that doesn't really. Does that happen at plays? That's, saw, that's what JJ does after his after his gigs. Isn't it? <laughs> no, well, yeah, often. But I, I went to see Hamlet in the theatre. But uh, the entire time until the day before, I thought I was about to go and see Hamilton. <laughs> different, and very, up, and very different vibes. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I'll still go. My friend had bought tickets. I was like, okay, here we go. But then uh, it turns out that Jeffrey from Fresh Prince was in the um, cast. He was amazing. Oh. And I was very starstruck in the bar afterwards because he was just stood by the bar, you know? There's a play on at the moment called Hamnet, which is even more confusing. I believe I've got tickets for that as well. (laughs) (laughs) Next week. Well, hopefully it ends with uh, someone bringing on a bouquet of flowers for Mikel Arteta. That would be nice, wouldn't it? That would be a lovely way. Assuming they win. Who knows? Maybe it could be completely unexpected, like your trip to Hamlet, JJ. Mm. Uh, Well, that's lovely. I think we summed up that one. Would you like to do... No. Go on. Liverpool... At Brentford, Tim. Crikey. Uh, uh, Liverpool to win by two clear goals. Is that score, accurate enough? A score of 2-0. <laughs> 2-0, oh. two nil. excellent. JJ. Uh, Liverpool will score one and Brentford will score one from a second p- phase of a free kick. Okay, that's 1-1, one, one, yeah? Yes, 1-1. One, one. Uh, Liverpool 3-1. Liverpool 3-1, I'll say Liverpool 2-1. And then Arsenal at Burnley? 4-0 Arsenal. 
Uh, that's pretty good. 3-0. <laughs> <That's pretty good>. <laughs> 5-0. 5-0. <laughs> that's a good shout. 5-1. <laughs> Go on, Brentford. Brentford, Burnley. Same difference. Any other business? We can go through the other Premier League fixtures if there's anything anyone wants to bring up on any of them. I'm looking forward to the Tim Spears derby, Tottenham against Wolves, which I do genuinely think will be a great game. I think it'll be lots of fun. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a real shame Mateusz Cunha's out for a few months because him and Neto and the returning Huang, I'd love to see them with the space afforded to them beyond Spurs' back line. Uh, it'll, it'll, it'll be a good game. Neto's in fantastic form at the moment, so... We'll give him a game. <laughs> I've written that down as a band name idea. The returning Huang. <laughs> I keep a list of band names. That would work. Most of them written down. Have those three played much together? No, because ne- yeah, Neto missed Neto's sort of two, injured, three months. Yeah. Huang out for the Asian Cup. And now Cunha out with a Cunha's really impressive this season, I thought. Like, mm. really, he's really coming on something. Um, Spurs should win this anyway, though, right? They should. Although their numbers, weirdly, if you look at their underlying numbers, um, expected goals and that, that usual... Stuff. Spurs are actually not anywhere near as good as you think they might be. They're about 10 goals over what their XG is, and their XGA has them really low down. They've conceded an XG of 40.9, and they've let in 36, which is a slight overperformance of that. But the worry is that it puts them something like 16th in the table for, uh, what's it, 2019, 18, 17, 16, 15, 14, 13, 13, which is better than 16. But the underlying numbers are kind of worrying. But um, I think John McKenzie has got a video on this coming out soon, actually, on um, the Athletic FC. And uh, I think a lot of it's to do with the way that Ange Postecoglou wants his teams to play and the way they play will naturally encourage these sorts of numbers because a lot of that apparently is late in games. He doesn't want them to stop trying to keep pushing forward in the 80th minute, even if it's dangerous for the game state. So he'll just keep pushing them forward and so they would concede many more chances, which is maybe why those numbers look worse than they are. You can't leave a Spurs game early. It's not like Man City, is it, Nick? Anything else on the uh, weekend? List uh, that catches your eye. Inevitably, I'm going to pick out Nottingham Forest. Very big Huge game. game. Very big game. Given that uh, the next Forest next fixture, so it's West Ham at home. West Ham obviously having a bit of a sticky time. Lo- haven't won in four, I think it is. Well, this will be their reaction game, won't it? Will well, they give a reaction? <laughs> from a personal point of view, I desperately hope not. But yeah, Forest's next games after this one, Aston Villa away, Liverpool at home, then Brighton away, and with Manchester United in the FA Cup kind of tucked in there as well. So if Forest can't beat a beleaguered, a West Ham beleaguered? I they're probably they're beleaguered, yeah. Beleaguered territory? Can't beat a beleaguered West Ham at home when, in theory, although not quite so much this season, home form is supposed to be Forest strength, then could be big problems with points deductions kind of looming as well. Woof. And on that note, uh, just to round off on the prediction stuff, uh, Tim, uh, you actually ended an eight-game incorrect prediction streak, as you kind of mentioned. You did get all four out of four right last time. I didn't realise that. Okay. So I highlighted one victory, which was absolutely spot on, but you got all four results right. Yeah. So what what, what do I get? Um, I would imagine a hug from Adam when he's back. Ah. Well, something to look forward to. Tell him I said that. Um, Theme. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what you get, JJ. Uh, We are done then, I think, in that case. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for today. Thank you very much, Tim. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, JJ. Top debut. Thanks, and thank you to you, the listener and watcher. Beautifully The most important of all. Nick, thank you so much. Mm, Thank you. I've just realised I didn't call you the bearded delight when I introduced you, which was I, I actually said to myself I would do, but it, it was, was noted. it was it was it was uh, akin to a bearded delight performance. I will be back on Monday. Adam will be back next Friday as usual. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye.
The Athletic.